Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. It's been a hell of a week. Such a lot has happened. It feels like we should give this some extra attention. Maybe we should do the opening of this podcast like a Christopher Nolan film trailer. We have sold our longest serving player. We're about to sell Alexis Sanchez to Manchester United. We could be signing Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang from Dortmund. And Henrik Mkhitaryan could be an Arsenal player. Yeah, it's all a bit underwhelming. Sorry about that. I thought that might work a lot better, but it didn't. But all those things are happening or have happened. And actually, that is quite a lot of stuff going on. We didn't even really get a chance to pour over the bones of the Bournemouth defeat to let it fester and scratch and grow uh, all pus-filled and disgusting and we could pick away at it all week. No, the fact that Alexis Sanchez wasn't in the squad for the game against Bournemouth suggested that he was going to be off. That's what Arsene Wenger said. He's been a bit vague, etc., etc. It looks like he is going to go to Manchester United. I mean, ugh. think about the green puke emoji there. That's what I'm thinking in my head. It's a situation, you know, that I find somewhat contemptible. If you told me a week ago that we were going to sell Alexis Sanchez or move Alexis Sanchez to Manchester United, I would have been out with the flaming torches and the pitchforks and the whole lot. And if you'd said you can have Henrik Mkhitaryan as a a swap for that, I would have been like, no, I don't think I like that. I don't like it. But I've kind of come to terms with it. Like, I don't like Alexis Sanchez going to Manchester United. I can't possibly like that for years. Uh, We had this great rivalry with United. All that hate is still 
it runs through me like a stick of rock, even if we haven't been quite at the loggerheads we used to be. But of course, the main thing about Manchester United is the fact that Jose Mourinho is the manager there. And as we all know, Jose Mourinho is history's greatest monster. And I don't want to do anything that makes Jose Mourinho happy. And I think he will be happy for a time, at least, with Alexis Sanchez. So that doesn't sit right with me. But Mkhitaryan in, I've kind of grown a bit okay with that idea because he was a player that we were interested in in the summer of 2016 when he went to Manchester United. It was all done. It was all agreed for him to come to Arsenal. And uh, then there could have been an element of gazumping. But from what I hear, we kind of changed our mind on the deal. And that's where he ended up because of that. It could have been done, I believe. So he's a player that Arsene Wenger has wanted in the past and we've seen him at Dortmund do fantastic things he hasn't done much at Manchester United but then that could be down to Mourinho because he is uh, a terrible awful person who does like to take one or two members of his squad and make examples of them as a way to sort of impose his authority on the rest of the squad like look what I can do to this guy I paid 30 million or 35 million for this guy he's a great player and I'm going to treat him like an absolute cunt And you're going to watch because this could happen to you if you don't do exactly what I say. And I think in a squad full of young-ish kind of players and young forward talent, when you think of Lingard and Rashford and Martial, if they look at the way Mourinho treats an established talent like Mkhitaryan, they'll do what he says. They will fall into line. So maybe, maybe he can revive his career at Arsenal. Sanchez is going to go there. He's going to earn an awful lot of money. And I don't really have a problem with him going somewhere to earn an awful lot of money. I never really thought that he was going to extend his deal with Arsenal anyway. He always felt to me like a player who was going to go after a few seasons, three seasons probably, when you give him a four-year deal. The third season, if he's not going to sign, you sell him. That's a different thing. That's probably something we should have done last summer. Of course, we should have done it last summer. If we weren't going to stick to what we said we were going to do, we should have done it last summer. But of course, we didn't, and now we're in this kind of a situation. Now, Theo Walcott is also gone to Everton. £20 million deal. Good deal for him. He goes to play regular football. He gets a change of scenery. It feels to me like that's something his career has needed for quite some time. I think it's gone stale between him and Arsenal. Um, I think he probably could have moved for the sake of his own career a little earlier. And I think for the sake of Arsenal, we could have probably moved him on a little earlier. But he goes with most people's goodwill and good wishes. He was never really my favourite player, as you'll know. But, you you know, he scored a lot of goals for us, over 100 goals. He seems like a nice guy and there's no fuss and no drama. So he can go to Everton with everyone's best wishes. We play Everton in a few weeks. Of course, we don't want him to do well that day, but generally speaking, there's no big issue there. You wish him well. You wish him luck. Now, Alexis, while I understand why he wants to move, he's 29. It's his last big contract. He's got sporting ambitions that can't be realized at Arsenal. He probably wants to win the Champions League. He probably wants to be in a team which competes for the Premier League. And right now, Arsenal is not a team that can do that. Um, Nobody is in terms of the Premier League anyway, because of what Manchester City are doing this season. But, you know, you can see why United would be an attractive prospect for him. They're offering a huge amount of money, perhaps more money than Manchester City. Again, I don't really have any problem with that. He's got one more big deal left in his life, and he has every right to maximize his earning potential. If you want to call him a mercenary or a money grabber, that's entirely up to you. You're you're perfectly entitled to hold that opinion. I don't agree with it. However, 
I can't wish him well. I can't say good luck at Manchester United, Alexis Sanchez. I just can't do it. It goes against everything I believe in. And what I believe in is for Jose Mourinho to be unhappy. So if Alexis Sanchez does well at Manchester United, that will make Jose Mourinho happy. And I can't stand for that. I don't think any normal, right-thinking human being could want anything to happen that would make Jose Mourinho happy. So if that means Alexis Sanchez, as much as I've appreciated his football and his contribution since he joined the club, his amazing goals, his his tenacity, his desire to win, which has at times set him apart from many of his teammates and also put him at odds with some of his teammates. And you can think what you want about that, whether it's the right way or the wrong way. Look, you know, he, he just wanted to win things. And, uh, you know, for a club that's been accused of perhaps not having that desire or having that character, et cetera, et cetera, you know, I don't have a problem with that. But as I'm saying, as I, as I rudely interrupted myself, despite my appreciation for all those things, I would enjoy it if it didn't go well. I would like it if his form deserted him. I'd like it if he hated Manchester. I'd like it if he fell out with uh, Jose Mourinho in a very short period of time. Like if somehow over the space of six or eight weeks they developed the most toxic relationship known to man that football has ever seen. And while he sits there picking up all the money that he is perfectly entitled to earn, things go terribly, terribly on the pitch. He goes the rest of the season without scoring a goal or making an assist. He becomes so disillusioned with life In those six months in Manchester, he's desperate to get out. He tells his agent, I have to leave. I can't do it. I can't stay here a second longer with this Portuguese wank blaster. Get me and my dogs out of here. I'll go anywhere. Just I'll take less money. Just get me out of here, please. I would enjoy that a lot. I would laugh out loud. I might uh, roll on the floor laughing. I might uh, laugh my ass off and all the other various acronyms that might describe the extent to which I am laughing. Now, I can't see it happening, to be perfectly honest. He's too good a player for all that to happen. But we live in hope because, as a great man said to me once... Because if you ever got hope, what the fuck have you got? Really can't argue with that, can you? Anyway, we better get on with the show because we've got a lot to get through between now and the end. We will be talking about Crystal Palace... A bit later on with uh, Ed Malion from The Independent, and he also throws in a very interesting prospective name as somebody who might replace Arsene Wenger when the time comes. So check that out a little bit later on. But to get a bit more on the potential signing of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang from Borussia Dortmund and also uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan coming the other way from Manchester United, I spoke earlier today with uh, our tactics columnist uh, on arsblog.com, Lewis Ambrose, but he is something of a Borussia Dortmund expert as well. So we talked about uh, Aubameyang, what kind of a player he is, what are these disciplinary issues that he's had, uh, what could he bring to this Arsenal team and then we talk about Mkhitaryan and perhaps the reunion of those two players in red and white now just to give you the uh, the heads up lots is happening really really quickly at the time of recording Obama Yang was expected to be in the Dortmund squad for their game against Hertha Berlin uh, on Friday night which is tonight, obviously, when you're listening to this, hopefully. But uh, Dortmund have left him at home. He's still in Dortmund, but it does look like things are going down between him and Arsenal. Uh, and by the time this podcast is finished recorded, who knows where the developments might be. So just bear in mind this conversation happened before that. So anyway, look, here's myself and Lewis talking about all that stuff. It's interesting. And we'll be back the far side of this to move into the Crystal Palace chat and more. 
Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is a player long coveted by Arsenal fans uh, and you can understand why because of his goal scoring record but I want to talk about that in a bit more detail in a while but but let's um, talk about what sort of a player was he when he first arrived at Dortmund because his his goal scoring record in recent years is amazing but when he first arrived he wasn't played as a striker. No, so Dortmund signed him in the summer of 2013 and he'd been playing up front for Saint-Étienne and Dortmund sort of unexpectedly at the time still had Robert Lewandowski. They thought he was going to move to Bayern Munich. They decided to hold on to him for one more year and let him go for free at the end of the season. So Aubameyang sort of had to be shoved out wide and I think Sven Mislintat mentioned that when he signed for Arsenal and did a big interview in Germany and he said... They watched him as a striker, but then he arrived and he had to play out wide. And it, it really, he scored quite regularly for a wide player, but he didn't fit in at all. Um, to the extent Dortmund were actually trying to sell him in after his first season at the club. I think Klopp and Wotzka weren't on board with it, the sporting director and the chief exec. But um, Jürgen Klopp was really, really open to letting him go. Was that because he didn't view him as somebody who could do the job that he wanted him to do in the middle when Lewandowski went? Or was it to do with just looking at a player who, you know, in terms of his physical profile, is not your traditional wide man? Yeah, so like you say, he's he's too big. I wouldn't say stocky, but just too tall probably to play like you'd expect a winger to usually play. He's not got the close control and it didn't really suit Dortmund properly. So Klopp was playing him out wide. He had Lewandowski. They signed two strikers the summer that Lewandowski left and all indications were Aubameyang was going to continue to play wide. And Klopp, I think Roma were interested and Klopp was all for selling him. Things didn't work out with Chiro Mobile and Adrian Ramos who joined the club in Lewandowski's place and Aubameyang almost stumbled into playing up front because other people couldn't score any goals. And since then, he's been unbelievable. He just hasn't stopped scoring. He was really, really great at the end of that last season under Klopp. It sort of the turn in form for Dortmund after almost being in a relegation battle came with Aubameyang going up front and regularly scoring. And then since uh, Klopp left, it was Thomas Tuchel first and Aubameyang's performances have gone through the roof, basically. Yeah, was there ever any, any acknowledgement from Klopp about the, about the way that, that it happened in the sense that, OK, the best laid plans of mice and men and managers have ideas about how they want their teams to play and how they view the personnel that they have and certainly the personnel that they want to play the particular system or play the football that they like to play. I mean, was it a surprise to Klopp that this guy, when he played up front, all of a sudden just turned into a guy who was scoring goal after goal after goal? I think it must have been one. I, and I think that's really baffling, actually, because obviously he had him for the whole year um, playing wide before he decided to sign, or the club decided to sign two more strikers to try and take Lewandowski's place. Mm. And it apparently didn't occur to anybody that maybe Aubameyang should be the one given the chance to lead the line. So I think there was never really a really public acknowledgement that they'd messed up. But... I think it was obvious to everyone by uh, around February, March. Aubameyang had started a few games after Christmas of 20, well, Christmas 2014. So the beginning of 2015, he'd started up front. Dortmund played in the Champions League in Juventus and he was shoved out wide again to play Immobile down the middle. And it really didn't work. The team 
which had started to recover some form, looked blunted up front. I think it was a last chance saloon for a mobile playing in his native Italy. And it just didn't work out. Aubameyang was back up front again the next week. Immobile left in the summer and the rest is really history, as you would say. Yeah. So, look, in terms of the type of striker that he is, and uh, you, you wrote a great profile of him for uh, for the blog, which people should go and read. Um, he's scored 116 goals in 139 games since the club started to use him as a striker, which is an amazing strike rate. Um, what what kind of a forward is he? Because at Arsenal, right at this moment in time, we still have Olivier Giroud, who we all know what kind of player he is. He's a he's a, a more traditional centre forward. Alexandre Lacazette, who is a player who perhaps is different to what people thought he might be. Again, a good player with his back to goal, better than I thought he was going to be in that regard. But but a bit more of a penalty box player than than Giroud so where does Aubameyang fit in the spectrum of what we've got and what can he bring to the team that it doesn't already have I think Aubameyang if, if we want to put him almost in a box is the most extreme version of what people expected Lacazette to be in the summer I, you, like you said yourself and I thought as well Lacazette would be a striker who we're looking for in the last 10 yards of the pitch and that's pretty much it. He's not going to be dropping into midfield and contributing. And obviously, we've all seen him for half a season now. And I think we did him quite an injustice uh, to to think he was a striker that would only be influential in the final third. I think Lacazette's really, really impressed me. His hold-up play, bringing others into the game in a way not dissimilar to Giroud, who's obviously physically a completely different profile. Yeah, I think Lacazette is pace to burn, firstly, if Theo Walcott is gone now to Everton, mm. and Aubameyang La- La- um, immediately replaces what is out of the squad in Walcott's pace. He's as quick as Walcott, certainly. So I, I don't know if that, that's one of the reasons for targeting him, that they're losing something along those lines and they want to replace it. But mostly, he's a player who will be in the box waiting for the ball. He can drop into the midfield and join in, but it's not where he's good. He he becomes a little bit lost. He wants the ball to be played in behind defenders. He is more than happy to stretch defenders and run into the channels and drift wide. But he's not going to get the ball and beat two or three men. He's going to be in the box, moving around, hoping that his burst of pace over two or three yards is what makes the difference and finds him some space and regularly you need to supply him because yeah. if Arsenal don't get the ball into the final third, it's not going to happen. I think I compared him in the blog, uh, or I said that his his movement, his play in the box is something we've not had since Van Persie. And Van Persie is a much more rounded player, a complete striker. But I think that real finishing touch is something the Aubameyang has that I would compare to the way Van Persie played when the ball was moved wide and we were trying to cut it back or whatever. Um, and he found he made it look easy yeah. finding chances for himself, and it's something we've probably lacked since he left. So, look, if we talk about Alexandre Lacazette as somebody who, at this moment in time, looks frustrated because he he lacks service, and I think um, we can talk about Lacazette as a penalty box player, really as well. It's his movement and sharpness in the box and his ability to get shots away that is probably his key asset. 
And in recent weeks, he has looked very frustrated, none more so than against Bournemouth on uh, Sunday last week, when he basically had to drop into midfield and ended up trying to create for others because there was nobody going to create for him. So if that's a concern that we have, and if that's something that's impacting on the game of uh, Alexandre Lacazette, if Aubameyang shares many of those qualities in terms of um, in terms of being a player who needs service, is is this not going to be just part of a puzzle that Arsenal need to fix in this transfer window? Because you can have a brilliant penalty box player and a brilliant finisher and somebody whose movement is incredible who will score you goals if you give him chances inside the box. But unless you give him chances, he's not going to make those goals or score them. Yeah, well, I mean... Tim Stillman at Stilberto on Twitter, he wrote a really great column for Arsplog a few weeks ago saying that the way we were playing recently would be reason for Theo Walcott to actually get a chance in the side again. I would hope that Aubameyang has been targeted with that in mind, that the idea is he's a, he's a player who isn't really interested in coming and getting the ball like Lacazette has been doing more and more. Mm. He, he's a player who will run behind defences. He will ask questions off the ball he will drag them wide and I would hope that the idea is that will give more space to Lacazette to Mesut Ozil to Jack Wilshere or Aaron Ramsey the, the worry is that it's not been thought through properly as you say and Arsenal are panicking and just signing a guy that scores a lot of goals without thinking how he actually fits into the team and I think a big question is how he and Lacazette would line up in the side together because they're two strikers. Lacazette can play wide, but it's something clearly with Giroud being on the bench for every single Premier League game bar one when he was fit. Moving Lacazette wide is not something that's been considered up till now. And Aubameyang, is, for the, the reasons mentioned at the top of this, should not be played out wide. I don't see any way that Arsenal have played in recent seasons that actually lends itself to fitting them into the team together. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is going to be a, a, a something for Arsene Wenger to consider. I mean, there's part of me that goes, I, I wonder if in this weird time Arsene Wenger is thinking about playing two up front because uh, he really doesn't have much else he can try in terms of the way he puts his team together because we've done three at the back. We've gone back to a back four. We've tried a 4-3-3. Three, three. We've, you know, played the 4-2-1-3-1, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. So maybe that's something that's that's in the back of his mind. But, uh, yeah, certainly if you've got uh, Mesut Ozil in your side, th- there's a guy who can create for both of those. But it, 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 it requires you to sort out the rest of your team so you can give Ozil that space to... To, to play that role, to be the creator. And I think um, you know one of the concerns that I raised on, on the podcast on Monday was, you know, as long as our midfield remains as dysfunctional as it is, we could sign all the forwards in the world and it's not going to make the impact that uh, we we would like it to make. Yeah, I mean, how, how often, we mentioned Lacazette already, but how often in recent months have we seen Alexis Sanchez dropping into his own half to come and get the ball? Because if he stands on the opposition back line, it doesn't reach him. So yeah. we have we have the players, certainly with Meza especially, to deliver a final pass, but what about all the passes that come before that to get anywhere near the opposition box? I think that's the problem. And uh, you and JB spoke about it on Monday on the Cast Extra. There, we've, we've gone away from playing three central players in the midfield. Now suddenly we play two again and 
we don't keep the ball anymore. I, th- I think that a lot of people were frustrated with the way we played a few years ago, keeping the ball for long periods and not really creating chances constantly. But I, I, I was fine with it per- personally. I think we were keeping possession. We were usually probing, wearing sides down. I think that's not a problem at all, especially when you have such attacking talents. But right now we can't even seem to do that. So I'm not sure how we drag defences apart in order to find spaces in the middle of the box for guys like Lacazette or Aubameyang. If we can't get the ball in wide areas consistently enough, can't keep the ball in the middle, it's a bit, it does look a bit hopeful mm. and a, a little bit panicky, uh, especially for the reported fees that would be involved. Um, yeah, and you just have to wonder, will Aubameyang come in and hit it off immediately with these new teammates as well? Yeah, that's true. Um, one of the issues that people had or have been mentioning over the last little while are, are disciplinary issues. And those tend to those tend to surface when a player is uh, heading towards the exit at a club he's been at for a little while. I think we saw it this week with, um, with Alexis Sanchez that there were some stories put out there that he was disruptive and he didn't go to team parties and, you know, people thought he was a bit of a difficult character which, you know, all of which might be true, but when a player is on the way out, a club likes to present uh, that side Mm -hmm. of the player because it softens the blow of him leaving. And, you know, Alexis obviously has been a fantastic player for us, hasn't really worked as well as he has in previous seasons this season, but his overall contribution in the three seasons before that has been absolutely superb. He's been a brilliant player for us. Similarly, Obama Yang at at, at Dortmund, the the goal-scoring record we've mentioned already is just superb. So, you know, that's a blow for a team to lose a player with that kind of goal scoring record what are the the disciplinary issues is it something that arsenal fans should be worried about if he does arrive uh i don't think it's a big concern in until he scores a lot of goals and somebody else wants him uh and he looks to force a transfer again i think the the weirdest thing personally for me was in the summer he quite publicly flirted with other clubs um, it's well documented that he always wanted to play for Real Madrid. He's been linked with AC Milan and he tends to encourage these links when they come about, which doesn't sit well with anyone. I don't think the, yeah. So in the last year he's been banned from games three times by Dortmund, but never for anything really, really serious. I wouldn't say the last weekend was the worst one from the club's perspective. He missed an important team meeting the the night before their first game of the second half of the season and he was basically called a liar by the head coach Peter Stoger live on TV who said yeah he told us he forgot but well we know he's lying <laughs> um, Stoger they've, they've since talked about it Stoger said everything's fine they've he's apologized and that kind of thing but it was it's quite a brash response I thought live on the sky but I don't think Aubameyang is a troublesome character particularly. He's actually a really, despite the way he looks with the way he dresses and his boots and his cars, he's actually quite reserved, quite humble. You see him quite softly spoken when he speaks to the media. And then I think the, the really different thing to Alexis Sanchez would be his relationship with his teammates. Uh, I I saw there was a, a leak sort of from the Chilean camp 
a few months ago saying, you know, dropping different anecdotes about Arturo Vidal's bad behavior and things like that. And they mentioned Alexis in there and said that when he's on national team duty, he doesn't eat lunch with the rest of the squad. He, he'll go and pick a table on his own and put his headphones on and just have his own time. And it seems he doesn't really garner much relationship with anyone that he plays football with, strangely, yeah. for some, for whatever reason. Um Aubameyang is the complete opposite. He's really, really close with everyone at Dortmund. He's, and I, the whole dressing room loves him. Nobody has a problem with him within the dressing room, even with these latest rumours and the idea that he is encouraging transfer speculation. They're, they're still laughing around with him all the time, every time any video goes public. And if anything, actually having somebody who does nothing but mess around and smile all the time might do a bit of good for this Arsenal squad who seem utterly miserable a goal scoring a boue I think that's what we could <laughs> not that I want to classify I, him like that but you know I don't think anybody would say no to that well the world of uh, transfers is fast moving Lewis and as we're recording there's been a statement from uh, Mikhail Zork who's the sporting director of Borussia Dortmund yep um, what has he had to say um, he's turned around now and said after Arsene Wenger's press conference on Thursday, we find it disrespectful to speak about players from other clubs. There's no contact with Arsenal. We assume Arsene Wenger has enough to do taking care of his own players' performances. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. curious, isn't it? Because Arsene Wenger was asked at his press conference, you know, what, what about Aubameyang? And he said, these kind of things is better when it's secret. You don't come out on it. Uh, I don't want to talk about it. But then he went on to talk about what, what kind of a character <laughs> Obama Yang was and how he might fit in at Arsenal. So, you know, he wasn't talking about the specifics of a deal, but he certainly wasn't talking as if uh, Obama Yang is a player he's not interested in. It's quite an interesting press conference, actually, because he's usually just flat out rejects things. Even when we know he's about to sign a play, he just mm. pretends that it's not going on at all. And he just sort of came out and admitted that all of these deals are about to happen. Do we read into it then, basically, that Dortmund, it's not a case that they're they're trying to stop Arsenal from signing Obama Yang. It's a case that they are... They're going to make it, uh, I won't say difficult, but if there is going to be a sale, it's going to be very much on their terms. Um, they're going to get yeah. what they want for the player. I think we saw that in the summer when they sold Usman Dembele to Barcelona. Barcelona the player went on strike. He didn't yeah. turn up for training. He didn't even, he left Dortmund, in fact. Um, and uh, the club didn't let Barcelona get away with whatever they wanted to to do in the negotiations they still stood firm and said no it's going to be over 100 million that is the price that's what you'll pay or he'll stay at the club so I guess it's just another firm hand in negotiations and they're making it really clear to Arsenal that either you pay the price or it won't happen. All right, well, we'll wait and see what happens in that regard. It's not as if Arsenal have a brilliant track record of being uh, decisive, you know, when it's put up to them. Yeah, exactly. You know, when it's been put up to them in transfers before, I mean, there's plenty of times where we've been given the ultimatum and have said, well, they'll go stick it and uh, we don't want the player. But, you know, it really feels like a... uh, the kind of signing Arsenal need to make in terms of making a statement when you lose your best player, um, just swapping him for Henrik Mkhitaryan is not going to uh, appease the fans, nor is it going to restore a great deal of faith in the team. And and that's what appears to be happening again at the time of recording. We should caveat this because um, things can happen very quickly when it comes to transfers. But again, in his press conference this morning, Arsene Wenger confirmed that it would be uh, player exchange is the word that he he used whether there's money one way or the other and I think it's Arsenal looking for a bit of money as well 
remains to be seen. But when we take into account the interest in Obama Yang, um, Mkhitaryan coming in does make an awful lot of sense in that regard because they do have that connection from Dortmund past. Yeah, obviously they played together. They arrived together actually in Dortmund the summer that Mario Götze was sold. They came in as almost a dual replacement for his threat. Um, so they played together for three seasons at Dortmund, the last of which was after Mkhitaryan left, uh, was what led Mkhitaryan to leave the club after a brilliant season, 20-odd goals, 30-odd assists. Aubameyang scored around 40, I think, in all competitions mm. that year. They've definitely they've definitely hit it off in the past, and it feels like Arsenal putting a lot of eggs in the basket that two players who already know each other would be able to come in, I guess, and hit it off once more. For, for people who maybe only know Mkhitaryan from what he's done at Manchester United or not done or not been able to do at Manchester United, what kind of a player is he when he is on form and not being poisoned by uh, the, the little Portuguese dwarf? Um, Which one? Yeah. (laughs) I I think people should be hesitantly excited, if that makes any sense. Sure. Mkhitaryan is a huge, huge talent. He showed it at Dortmund. Um, I think it's something that you yourself have written about at times. Arsenal still have this reputation for cramming playmakers into the side and being really flowing, and it's just not true anymore. It hasn't been true for a couple of years. Mkhitaryan would sort of bring some of that back, actually. It would take a lot of pressure off of Mesut Ozil. He'd probably play wider. Um, If we went to a back four again, he'd play in one of the wide roles, almost free on the flank, as we've seen Nasri do in the past, or as Santi Cazorla did for a while when Mesut joined the club. It would be a position like that, or he could also play behind the striker in in the current back three setup that we Mm. seem to go with. He is a, a player that can both link play together and have really decisive actions in the final third, be that getting into goal-scoring positions where he's not the best finisher, but he does get into those positions, or whether it's creating for others, which is where he really comes into his own. I would, I think the Man United thing has been really weird, but does need to be caveated with the fact that he joined the club, made one Premier League start before December and was subbed at half-time in that. It's definitely not been given any platform to succeed at Manchester United. Uh, so I I think this is a signing that would probably ease the burden on Mesut Ozil, would, should help the team create more chances and give another goal scorer who... He's not going to score 15, 20 goals a season, but we need more players who can Mm. chip in with around 10 goals or so because that seems to be one of our big issues at the moment, I would say. Okay, let me put my gigantic, optimistic, glass (laughs) half-full hat on here and put forward a theory that with Aubameyang coming in, with Mkhitaryan coming in, with the club showing perhaps a little bit of willingness to change and to to bring in uh, some players who might make a difference, Mesut Ozil signs a new contract. I told you it's a very big hat, very big optimistic hat. That is a heavy hat. It is a heavy hat indeed. But is it a case that these two guys could play together or would would it be a signing perhaps that might indicate something about Ozil's future? I mean, could they operate in the same team? Um, I, I think it could be both, honestly. Um, so if I were to liken Mkhitaryan to a current Arsenal player, I would say his his best form looks like what you could imagine the very peak of Alex Awobi's career may look like. That kind of drifting in from wide areas, connecting midfield and attack, 
injecting a little bit of directness into the team. Probably actually not that dissimilar to Rzygski when he was fit. Mm. Um, I think they can definitely coexist in the side. I would, if if that were to happen, I would rather see it with a back four because then you can squeeze in a player on the other flank who's yeah. maybe a bit more of a direct goal threat. I think if you play the two of them behind Lacazette or behind Aubameyang, then maybe you've got two players that create a lot between them, but who are they creating it for? I, so I would personally rather see a back four with, if if Mkhitaryan joins the club, as we say, it looks like he's going to, and Mesut Ozil in his number 10 role, and Mkhitaryan out wide, then somebody else on the other flank, attacking goal, making runs for them to actually find. Someone like Theo Walcott, maybe, um, <laughs> well, unfortunately. That, that, that ship has sailed. Uh, <laughs> it has to be said. Well, very, very quickly and finally, taking into account the circumstances in which Arsenal find themselves, for which they obviously have to take a huge amount of responsibility. And I mean that with regard to Alexis Sanchez and the way that his situation has been managed uh, both last summer and in in this month. If he were to go, and Theo Walcott has obviously gone, uh, and we bring in Mkhitaryan and we bring in Obama Yang, is it a good way of coping with those two departures, in your opinion? Uh, I think it's a big roll of the dice. But I think, yeah, given the position that we've left ourselves in, it's probably about the best we could do. All right. Well, we'll wait and see. Obviously, those deals have yet to be confirmed, but uh, we'll keep fingers crossed that they are. Lewis, thanks very much indeed. That's all right. Thanks, Andrew. Follow Lewis on Twitter. He is at LG Ambrose, at LG Ambrose. And uh, he's got lots of uh, good scoop at the moment on what's happening from the Dortmund side of things. So uh, for all the latest, make sure you give him a follow. And of course, check out his tactics columns on arsblog.com. If you go to the main site, uh, look at the menu bar, click columnist, so you'll find his name there. You can read his stuff. And very good stuff it is too. Now, before we get into the second part of the show, I was thinking the other day about why is Arsene Wenger going to do when he calls it a day as a football manager he's so wedded to the job he's so wedded to Arsenal he's going to need something isn't he to to pass his day and he doesn't really strike me as the kind of man who's going to just tend to his garden or sit in a sit in a rocking chair or uh, play lawn bowls what's he going to do away from football and then it struck me He needs to get into the entertainment game. He needs to get into show business. He's got that kind of charisma and pizzazz. He's got the the star power, if you will. Is he going to be an actor? I don't really see him as an actor. I think he's got to be a singer. But I don't think he's, you know, he doesn't quite have it to do on his own. And then I was thinking, I know, he, he he needs to team up with somebody else. He needs to harness their talent so his can be nurtured, I guess you would say. And I was thinking, who could he who could he team up with? One Direction? No. Foo Fighters? Nah. Taylor Swift? Nah, can't see that happening. Justin Bieber? Pfft, come on. Whatever you think of Arsene Wenger, he's got more taste than that. And then it hit me. I, f- I discovered it. I thought of it. The perfect singer and the perfect song. He's got to do it. He's got to... He's got to get on board with Suzanne Vega. If you don't believe me, check it out. Look, uh... I live on the 
Okay, that's the only bit of the entire song he could do, but, you know, that's enough, right? Don't want to tax the man. He is getting on in years. Right. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. We're playing Crystal Palace on Saturday, not long after playing them at Selhurst Park, actually. So we, uh, we're we facing a team that we beat away from home. And uh, for us this season, that is quite the achievement. With me to discuss that game and lots more, I'm delighted to welcome to the show the uh, sports editor of The Independent, also the host of the Indie Football Podcast. It's Ed Malion. Hi, Ed. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good, thank Good. you. Arsenal are playing Crystal Palace on Saturday. Um, not long after playing them at Selhurst Park, and it's unusual, I guess, for the for the two games in the league to come so close together. That game might go down as something of a pub quiz game, if you can think of a reason why that might be. Um, uh, let me think. I've just completely blanked on what. Well, we won. Last game was. Arsenal won three two. That was also, the Sanchez was unbelievable that night. Yeah. And probably that's going to go down as the last time Alexis Sanchez scored for Arsenal. It's the last time he looked like he gave a shit as well, to be honest. <laughs> um, I, I thought I thought Arsenal were okay that day. I didn't think they were that good. It was a pretty even game. Um, mind you, they were much better than... Uh, do you remember the game in April when, when Palace turned them over 3-0? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was one, for me, one of the worst Wenger performances I've ever seen. That was the game after which Theo Walcott went on TV and said that they wanted it more than us. And yes. yeah, after that, 
Theo Walcott started one league game for Arsenal. People put it down to a formation change, but I really think that something happened um, with Arsene Wenger and Theo Walcott there. Maybe nothing blew up, you know, in terms of their relationship, but I don't think Wenger took kindly to that, um, even if it was pretty true. It feels that that sort I mean, that game, the, the entire game, before you even get to the comments after it, was a complete surrender, you know. And and it's always one of those where you, I want to give Palace credit, and, and they were really good. And it was Allardyce, it was pretty high energy, it, you know, and, and, and Palace took their chances and, and handily beat uh, a team that traditionally they've had some troubles against. But Arsenal's attitude that day, the body language, everything about it was an absolute disgrace. You know, it, it was not a team... Not only that, you know, obviously they ended up... Uh, where, where did Arsenal finish last season? Fifth? Fifth, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was a team that, that finished fifth. But that performance uh, is something that... It speaks to far greater issues, which, I, you know, I'm sure Arsenal fans are sick of talking about the, the wider issues at the club. Um, and I do think that there is there, there is a change coming. But that game for me, you know, and being able to, to see it close up like that was was probably worse than, than most of the Arsenal results in, in recent memory. Beyond, you know, the 8-2 stands out as a historic sort of turning point for the Wenger regime. But to lose 3-0 at Crystal Palace is not something that Arsenal should ever be doing. Yeah. I mean, it was after that game that he changed formation. He went to three at the back for the next game to sort of shock his team out of the slump that they'd been in since the end of January. And uh, yeah, I mean, it has been a, a relatively difficult place to go, but we're, we're in a situation now with Arsenal where the match winner from the last game a couple of weeks ago at Selhurst Park, Alexis Sanchez, is not going to play. I don't. I think it's reasonable to assume he's not going to play because uh, Arsene Wenger, yeah, even, even saying yeah. at his press conference today, if it doesn't go through, he'll be selected for Saturday, the, it being the, the swap deal with Mkhitaryan. But, you know, it's hard to envisage him being there and it's hard to envisage where Arsenal's goals are coming from at the moment. They need players like Alexis Sanchez to win games. So you're not bowled over by the prospect of Aubameyang then? Oh, no, I, I I would be into that. I definitely would be into the idea of that. I think if Arsenal could get in Mkhitaryan and uh, Aubameyang in place of Walcott, who hasn't played all season, and Sanchez, who, who wants out and has wanted out since last summer, I think it's probably a good deal for Arsenal and, and probably a good way to freshen the squad. I don't like the idea of Sanchez going to Manchester United just from a purely tribal point of view you know stepping back objectively I understand why he wants to leave and I, I can see why he would be frustrated and why the money on offer and uh, at 29 etc etc but you know United and Mourinho just as a, a fan of Arsenal that doesn't stick uh, well with me but none of, neither of those players are going to be available for Saturday yeah no, I, I feel like this is a good opportunity for Palace I think Palace are playing quite well at the moment Roy Hodgson um the thing with Hodgson is, is you can't say anything nice about him because Liverpool fans will swarm all over you and, and <laughs> weep about it. Um, but to be honest, when he when Palace hired him after the farce was that was the brief De Boer era, um, it felt like a good fit to me because he's, he's a guy from the local area and he did well at West Brom and Fulham, who were kind of similar sized clubs to Palace, I think, uh, and. Everyone loves him, and, and the turnaround has been significant. To lose your first seven games without scoring a single goal, mm. um, to be 
12th or wherever it is in January is farcical. It shows, I think, how how poor, basically, the, the bottom 12 teams are. Um, and I think Miguel Delaney, who you probably had on the podcast before, right? Um, yep, yep. Yeah, Miguel. So Miguel wrote something earlier this week uh, based on a discussion we had a, on our podcast about um, how, you know, all the money flooding into the top six is creating this sort of two-tiered Premier League. And, you know, these things always evolve. Like a couple of years ago, we had Leicester win the title and all that sort of stuff. But I think that with the increasing money, the increasing revenue that the top clubs are getting, there is going to be a little bit of a split where the mid-table teams are pretty much all as good as each other. What's the difference on any day between a Bournemouth, an Everton, a mm. Palace, a West Brom, a Stoke? You know, it's basically who's in good form and who's in bad form. And, and Palace currently are in in quite good form, and that's why I think they could take something off Arsenal um, at the weekend. I think Arsenal, obviously, on their day at home, uh, are a pretty tough side to beat, and I think they do play more expansive and interesting football at the Emirates than they do away from home. But Palace have got, at the moment, everything kind of ticking except Christian Benteke's not scoring goals. If Benteke starts scoring goals, uh, they could legitimately finish top half, which, as I say, after a seven-game head start for all of their relegation rivals is just an absolute nonsense thing to occur. So (laughs) I think the key against Arsenal will be if Arsenal can come up with a plan for Zaha, who I know people don't seem to like for some reason, but he is probably the biggest game-changing talent outside the top six and uh, you know he's that good that he can pretty much win games on his own and he'll do it against the top teams and uh, he could well do it this weekend yeah I mean I think you, you talk about Benteke and not scoring goals uh, it's been a feature of Arsenal to not only boost players who've been in bad form but teams who've been in bad form um, you know with our own inadequacies uh, we've gone a long way to help out other teams I think I speaking to Nick Miller before the Forest game uh, uh, in the FA Cup and I was saying to him you know what, what do you think and he was going well you know if we can come out of it with a respectable 2-0 or a 3-1 something like that I'll be happy and I was like you underestimate our ability to make your team uh, have a good day. So, you know, it's a concern, certainly for me, um, when, when Palace come to visit. Home form for Arsenal, notwithstanding, it has been pretty good um, uh, and they've been hard to beat at home. But Palace won defeat in the last 12. Uh, it, it is pretty good going, isn't it? And when you talk about the teams who are this sort of split level, does it not also make it, I won't say easier, but does it not make it more possible for teams below that top six to actually be competitive in games against the top six? That it's not just a, a three-pointer against the you know the bottom teams in the table. The, pretty much any team can take points off any other team in the Premier League. I mean, Palace took two points from Manchester City just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, that's a game that Palace should have won. And uh, if you oh the penalty, yeah, Jesus. um, You know, if Palace have actually managed to not win two games by missing last minute penalties, the other one was the the farcical Benteke Milivojevic thing. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Yeah, I saw that. So, you know, there are four points left on the table. There, Palace broke their um, winless streak at the start of the season by beating Chelsea. Um. Any team in this league on their day, I think, bar maybe Swansea, can beat any top team. And You know, if you delve into the economics of the Premier League, Crystal Palace 
has spent thirty million pounds on a striker who's earning one hundred and twenty grand a week or or whatever it is that mm. um, Benteke is getting. That is something that I would have thought unthinkable even two years ago, let alone beyond that. So it is a, a reality of the new Premier League that the the clubs that are in that twelve team sort of mini league the quagmire really they can spend money that they never dreamed of and and Wilfred Zaha when he first came through Palace you know was just a kid and and he had to leave to to get what he wanted and he's comes back and now he's earning 100 grand a week at the club that brought him through from the age of eight these are things that were just unthinkable so you can never predict too far ahead in the Premier League in terms of what the the state of play will be and, and what clubs like Palace will look like and you've got to remember that Palace could easily get back-to-back relegations like Sunderland and be in League One in, in three years' time. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, you know, I do think you have to to fear that sort of thing all the time. You have to live with that fear. Otherwise, you get complacent. And, and Palace are very scared of relegation with good reason. I was, as I say, I think that on, on their day, um, this is a very good team. But there are so many flaws. And I think the key flaw that Arsenal should look to exploit is is the goalkeeper. Um, but I, I do get an impression with Arsenal that, and Wenger's always been kind of a, a philosophical guy who focuses on his own thing. I do feel like sometimes Arsenal don't game plan that well for opposition. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the best coaches, not only, you know, I'm looking into other sports, NFL, like Bill Belichick, probably the greatest sports coach on the planet right now, I'd say. And the thing that he's really good at, apart from making his own team exceptional, is he always takes away the opposition's biggest strength, he tries to you know what he, what he describes as making them play left-handed. Now, if if Arsenal were to game plan for Palace, what they would try and do is they double up on Zaha, and they would try and get as many shots off, low shots off against Wayne Hennessy as they can. Um, do you expect Arsenal to actually do any of those things? No, absolutely not. I've never, I can't even remember us doubling up on anyone, regardless of how dangerous they are. And Wenger has never been that guy. I mean, I do, it's ludicrous to think he doesn't pay any attention to what the opposition uh, do or how they might do it, but it's never been the focus of how he sends out his teams. It's always been about them controlling the game and expressing themselves by having the football, you know? So, it, it, no, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't occur to me that he would do anything specific to try and exploit the weaknesses of, of Crystal Palace. That kind of distills, I guess, the very thing with Wenger in itself, I, I think it's admirable to just be like, this is how we play and we're going to back ourselves to win this way. But it's also kind of, and, and I don't think Wenger is an arrogant man. I think he's actually quite a humble man. But there is, that arrogance does cost Arsenal points on a regular basis. Mm. So at what point do you change, you know, change your outlook and, and go with it? Ferguson was many things. And, and, you know, he sent his teams out to play with a swagger and said, play uh, how you know. But even against lower league teams, he would identify the opposition's danger man and and work out what they needed to do to make sure that he couldn't hurt them. And I think that's 
that's the very base level of what teams should be doing, right? Yeah, no, I get it, but it's just not the way he operates. And I think we're at a point with Arsene Wenger where he is a leopard who really isn't going to change his spots. Or when he does change his spots ever so slightly, you know, we talk about the formation change earlier. That was certainly a bolt from the blue. It doesn't feel like something he's convinced by himself. You know, we've played this back three and he's uh, vacillated a bit this season. He's gone to a back four. He's gone back to a back three. You know, I I think there's a sort of confusion from him, and I think it transmits itself to the squad. I think it has affected performances that we don't have a defined system of play anymore. That's certainly something that's been an issue for maybe 18 months now. It's hard to know what Arsenal are trying to do when they play football, other than rely on somebody to do something brilliant. And that was never the case with Wenger's teams. There was always a plan. You could always see the way that they tried to play and tried to move the opposition around, and that's not there anymore. And, uh, you know, when you talk about looking for change, I mean, I think the change uh, has to come at some point uh, sooner rather than later. This summer, I would imagine, based on the way that the Arsenal board operate. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you feel like, you know, you've noticed, obviously, um, probably talked about at length, these kind of, how would you describe them? The introductions of, of people like Miss Lintat um, and Sanlehi and all the guys behind the scenes that have come in recently. Mm. That seems more pushed by Gazidis than, than Wenger. Um, do you think that this is the kind of, how would you say the stealthy beginnings of them preparing for life after Wenger? Because I don't think that until almost this year, now considering people have been calling for him for three to five years to go, this feels like the stealthy beginnings of, of the actual end for Wenger. Like an actual, you can see the moves they're making to facilitate his departure. Yeah. It's not that stealthy though, is it? You know, it's, it's, it's just not stealthy. It is what it is. I think it's, Uh, tacit admission from perhaps people at the club that they have to get the structures in place to deal with life after Wenger. They have to. They've no way. They've no other way of doing it. You can't let a guy like him leave and not have people there to do all the things that he does. And because he does so much, you can't bring in one guy to do it. You have to. You have to sort of get ahead of the game a bit. So. In some ways, that is a bit encouraging for me. Uh, I think we need both Mislintat and uh, Sanye to be really good at what they do and how they do it. Um, because I think, you know, the, even the change of manager, whoever it might be, when someone like Wenger goes, it, it, it has ripple effects, as we saw at Manchester United. But it's not stealthy and it's happening. And I, I think it'll probably happen this summer, the change of manager. I, I, I think it has to happen in, in the odd year, as it were, because... They keep doing this this two-year sticking plaster contract they keep going with, the extension, extension, extension. You get what we had last season where it's the contract's running down. He's not mm. signed a new one. So everyone, all everyone's talking about is, you know, are you going to sign a new contract? Are you staying? Who's replacing you? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when that's combined with results being poor, yeah. performances being questionable, that causes so many problems. What you have to do is sign the two-year extension but behind the scenes, everyone knows you're going after the first year. Exactly, yeah. So going forward, I, I think what we're going to see with Wenger is that there will be a turning round of opinion because people will start to remember exactly what he's done for Arsenal. However, uh, it's impossible to think now, I think, that that he hasn't stayed on, on way too long, which I guess every Arsenal fan talks about probably endlessly because this is 
the big topic of conversation around Arsenal and it has been for the last three years and it probably will continue to be until he leaves. Yeah, I mean, you could see why they gave him a deal. Like, last time, even if you didn't agree with it, you could sort of see why they made that decision because they didn't have anything prepared. They didn't have a head of recruitment. They didn't have a new scouting, uh, not department, but new people in the scouting system. They didn't have a... uh, a director of football, which is what we've got now, even if he can't be called director of football, he's director of football relations. So if he were to go in May, you're looking at a club who needed to do transfer business in the summer and uh, find a new manager and find all those structures. So you could see that, but I totally agree with you. I think the the two-year thing is basically a 12-month contract and after 12 months, you avoid all the hassle of, are you staying, are you going, et cetera, et cetera. It can't be any other way for it to be a healthy split. And who do you want to replace him, by the way? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I don't know who is the right man. You have to think that you need somebody with a bit of experience, right? Because there's been talk about Mikel Arteta coming in and, uh, you know, it's a romantic idea that a former player can come in having worked with Wenger and having coached under Guardiola for a year. But I don't think you can come into a job like Arsenal without any managerial experience whatsoever. And certainly, you know, coming in to replace a legendary larger-than-life figure like Wenger, you need somebody who's got the experience to deal with the fallout from that, the, with the, the ability just to not be Wenger. You know, so I don't know. I mean, people talk about Ancelotti and would he be a good idea, and maybe he would be a good idea for a couple of seasons just to sort of keep the ship steady. But beyond that, it's it's hard to know, and it's hard to know who exactly the Arsenal board might have identified. Um, you know, the, the name I keep an eye on yeah. now is uh, Luis Enrique. Really? Yeah, just because, just because there was contact last year. Between um, Arsenal and Luis Enrique? Yeah, yeah. Last, kind of, when, after he was leaving Barcelona, yeah, there was, and the thing is, you never know through how many intermediaries these things, these things have occurred. Mm. It's like when so-and-so has bid for so-and-so, um, very often that's not quite true. What it is actually is an agent has a mandate to sell a player for amount X, like say 11 million pounds. So every club knows they can get them from 11 million pounds and they've told the agent they're interested. Word gets out there, there's a bid. There's no actual bid because all they need to say is, yeah, we'll do the deal and the deal's done. Mm. Actually. But there was contact with Luis Enrique and I know he's, he's he wanted this time off. He wanted to have a sabbatical and I have my own problems with Luis Enrique because it's hard to work out how good he is necessarily because of the situation he went into at Barcelona. Mm. And he is a very terse, difficult man to deal with. Uh, But the arrival of the new director of football operations, um, I think, means that his name will at least come back into the mix. Now, obviously, the fact that there was was mild contact before predates... um, I, I really can't pronounce his name. So I'm not sure if it's the Catalan pronunciation or the Spanish pronunciation, uh, San Lehi. But they obviously know each other from their time at Barcelona. And I think he's just one to watch because he's got a pedigree. He's available. And in in many ways, he does look like a guy that might fit. That would be a, that would be an interesting one, certainly. Both from the blue as well. He's not somebody whose name we've heard mentioned in that regard as well. Do you know I mean, Is he an English speaker? Do you know? Or is that something he... I, would be surprised if he had good English, but yeah. 
wouldn't be surprised if he'd been learning it on his year abroad, yeah. his, his sabbatical year, because you know, in, in the same way that Pep did, Pep went to New York and learned English. I think um, everyone at the moment in football realises that the Premier League is, is the place to come if you want loads of bloody money. Yeah. You know, Average footballers, average managers, they know that if they can crack in, if you're a manager, you know, you're probably going to get the biggest contract you're ever going to have outside Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, Bayern Munich, I think, even if you end up at kind of a middling Premier League club. So Luis Enrique, if he's got any sense, would have been learning English purely because if any of the top six jobs came up, then his pedigree means that he should be in the mix because he's won he's won all the trophies. You know, this was it his first season he won I think five of the six, was it? Yeah, you you're better off. I my record of or my knowledge of Barcelona's trophies is I think they just win everything, so it's hard to keep track, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, it's like two AM here, so I'm just trying to work out I think yeah, I think in their first, in his first season I think he won the whole lot basically. Um in the season when Real Madrid won the Champions League under the first Zidane Champions League trophy uh, is the year I was living in Spain and covering Spanish football. And that Barcelona team under Enrique through that autumn was the best team in Europe by such a distance. They played such good football. Um, so even though they didn't win the whole lot that year, I do rate Luis Enrique because I think that the the process is good. I think he gets the players working and he, he gets them playing well together. Even if, you know, at the end they, they didn't win all the trophies that season. I still think that what he can do is coach a team very well. So if you put him into a good situation at Arsenal with, you know, perhaps some senior guys in there that he knows, which is important mm. as we've seen with Guardiola going in with Bagheera Stein and, and uh, Soriano at Manchester City, you've got Miss Lintat who hopefully will be able to recruit some, some good talent for him. And then I'm sure he'll bring some of his own guys as well. If he were to hypothetically come, I should distance myself from this. But, uh, you know, for me, it's an intriguing one. And it's it's certainly a name that I would, would monitor. Um, that said, you know, I don't know the, the internal thinkings of Arsenal right now. It's not, you know, not a club I write about so much. But Enrique is an interesting one. And it, if I was an Arsenal fan, I, I think he's probably in the top three sort of best case realistic scenarios as well. Hmm. Well, you know, it's a job I think that uh, would be very attractive to a lot of managers for very obvious reasons. Even if you are, you know, walking in the shadow of Arsene Wenger for a little while, you know, a big club in a great city, uh, fairly substantial resources, assuming that you push the board to uh, to back you and, and let you spend them. But look, we'll we'll keep an eye on that one. Ed, it is late and I'll uh, I'll let you go. So uh, thanks very much indeed. And uh, I'll let you get some sleep. No worries. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Ed is on Twitter at EAA Malion, at EAA Malion, and he hosts the uh, indie football podcast for The Independent. Uh, you can follow that Twitter account as well, at Indie Football. So here we are. Well, we've got through a lot on this particular show. We've obviously got a game of football at the weekend. We've got Crystal Palace on uh, Saturday. Hopefully we can get back to winning ways in the Premier League. Who knows what kind of a team we're going to have for that game. There's good news on the injury front. In fairness, uh, Koscielny's back, Monreal is back, Ramsey's back in the squad, Kolasinac is back. So, you know, we do have some options, which is a good thing. Whether we'll have any new players between now and then remains to be seen. At this point on Thursday evening, we don't. 
Um, but there you go. Much can happen in a very short period of time in football. So fingers crossed whether they're signed or whoever comes in is in time for, for Saturday remains to be seen. I think there's a deadline of tomorrow at midday for any new player to be involved at the weekend. So we'll wait and see. Fingers crossed it will be good to have some fresh blood, obviously, and we'll be without Alexis Sanchez. And uh, he, whether you like him or not at this point, has been a hugely important player for us and somebody whose goals got us the win against Palace last time out and uh, yeah look we'll see if we can cope without him without any additions to the squad this weekend there will of course be an Arsecast Extra on Monday James is in the final week of his uh, trip away so we'll have our final guest host uh, of the uh, of the month uh, he'll be with me on Monday morning I'll give you more details on that on Monday morning keep an eye out for the eye for questions do keep an eye on Arsblog News news.arsblog.com we'll bring you all the latest transfer stories on there as well there's not much else to say on this particular one so I'll uh, I'll leave it there thank you as ever for listening I'll catch you on the next one have yourselves a great weekend until then cheers bye bye person at Alexis Sanchez's number can't come to the phone right now. Please leave a message after the tone. Yes, Alexis, is um, Jose. If you wonder where are dogs, um, they are now my dogs. I own the dogs. Uh, Atom and Humber, very good dogs, very nice dogs, but now are my dogs. I don't like names, so I call them uh, Little Jose. And little Jose too. If you want dog back, you score goal. Simple. Score goal for Manchester United. You get dogs. No goal, no dogs. No goal in next game. You get dog. Beat by beat. Understand? That is how Jose work. That is why I am most successful manager ever. Nobody is better than me. Oh, look. Come, little Jose, say hello to Alexis. They are my dog, and now you are my bitch. Don't bother call back. We will be in park having fun. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 